All right, roots of faith. Uh, I want to start by introducing this and telling a, a story about um, one of the most traumatic experiences of my life and my family's life, which was, we're coming up on the anniversary of it, November 17th, 2015. We still lived in Washington State at that time in Spokane. And we had heard reports that there was going to be a big storm. And some people were saying maybe like a generational storm. And then they start saying like a once in a century kind of storm. We're like, well, what would that even look like around here? We're inland. And actually, I remember when we were first moving to Spokane, as I was researching about it, one of the things I learned is that it was like in top 10 cities in America with the fewest natural disasters. So I was like, oh, don't got to worry about that. Earthquakes, hurricanes, none of this stuff. Well, what they do get from time to time is a windstorm. And this one was a crazy windstorm. It started in the morning, and the lights were flickering, things were starting to get a little bit hairy. I remember it was a Tuesday, I was at church in the middle of a meeting, uh, I think it was with the worship committee or something, and we're sitting, we're talking, and um, I'm looking at it outside, and it's, it's really coming along, but all right, no big deal, power's still on. Uh, my secretary comes over, she says, there's a phone call for you. I say, oh, I'm in a meeting, you know, take a message, I'll call back. So, okay. She leaves, comes back a few minutes later. It's like, oh, it's a phone for you. It's like, I'm still meeting. She's like, it's your wife. I was like, okay, Ann understands. I'll call her back. No big deal. She leaves. She comes back a third time, and she's like, it's Ann. She says that a tree has fallen onto your house, and you need to come home right away. I said, why did she say that the first time? <laughs> so, and then straight away, the power goes out. I, get, I go hop in the car, and it's like a video game. There's giant trees falling down all over the place power lines. They let the kids out of school early. And so there's just children running around like mad frantically. It was, it was insane. Insane. And winds ended up getting up to um, over 70 miles per hour. I mean, so basically like hurricane force winds inland. And the thing is, we had all throughout Spokane and Washington State, these um, pine trees and ponderosa pines, huge, huge trees, great big tall trees. Uh, which, generally speaking, don't have deep roots. And then there's an even uh, additional problem in the city, because what does everybody do with their yards? they got sprinklers going. They're watering it. And so what does a tree not need to do if everybody's watering it already? doesn't need to dig deep roots. It's like, well, I'm getting the water all that I need right here on the surface. And so you have this whole city of these giant trees, which under normal weather conditions are just fine and they're going to live for a long time. But if you get a once in a century windstorm, they toppled over all around the city, including in my house. They were literally dominoes. It, it, dominoes. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, one, Anne was at home, homeschooling the kids. She's at home, home with them. Beatrice, our uh, second youngest, was a baby at that time. She's in the second story in her crib, taking a nap. Anne's downstairs with the boys doing school, and suddenly she just hears, I mean, everybody hears, the whole house just shakes. Boom! And she runs upstairs, she goes into Beatrice's bedroom, and Beatrice, little baby Beatrice, is standing up in the crib, and she just says, boom! <laughs> Gets her out, turns out, had fallen onto the house, went into our bedroom, we had like a walk-in closet, and opened the closet door of the walk-in closet, and it looked like Narnia because the tree had fallen through right into the closet. I mean, destroyed the rafters, so it was, it was incredible. 
All of that to say, <laughs> that really scary, traumatic time uh, reminded me and taught me the importance of deep roots. And this is a, a constant theme in the scriptures to give just perhaps the most famous reference along these lines. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so uh, Psalm 1 kind of paints a picture of God's purpose for his people. Actually, now as I'm looking at that, Jeff, would you mind? I've got handouts. I printed them up, and they're on my desk. Okay. Just run in there and grab those if you don't mind. <clears throat> so someone paints this picture of God's purpose for his people. It's a lot of P's there. It's a very alliterative. But this is what God's desire is, that we would have those kind of, of deep roots. So I wonder, for you guys, do you have in your mind's eye like a, a great tree, one that you loved growing up, or maybe one that's in your yard now, one that you could... You know, would go to. Did, did you ever have a tree like that in your life? What What was it like? Um, it was a beech tree. Oh, a beech tree. It was a, a big old monster tree. It's not there anymore. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it was at my my parents' current house um, mm. when we uh, when they built the built the house and you know or bought the lot or whatever. It was there and it had been there since the you know farmer had sold the ground prior. I guess his kids had played it and we knew the yeah. Farmer some grapevines coming off of it, so we'd swing on the grapevines yeah. down over a, especially in the wintertime, it went over a drop-off, so you could swing <laughs> down the grapevines and drop Perfect. into the snow. Right. <laughs> it was a fun tree. Yeah, fun tree. <laughs> Others of you, is there a, a tree in your life, and your experience that you can especially picture, or one that was meaningful to you? Um, mine's the one right in my front yard now. Yeah. It has the rope in it that yes. you got to kind of dodge when you're... <laughs> right. You see a great big tree like that, and it's like, it's it's a picture of peace in many ways, right? It's of security, of you know, just to be able to rest underneath of it, or perhaps to go swinging on it. Um, God has given us these gifts all around us that show us a picture of His desire for each and every one of us, that we would have deep roots, that we would be deeply rooted in Him and in His Word. But Psalm 1, as it goes on, it also points to the problem then, which corresponds to his purpose for us. So you think of like tumbleweeds, right? You don't see this very much in Michigan, thankfully, but in other parts uh, in the West, of course, this is something you see all over the place. And Psalm 1 hints at this one. says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, that it becomes um, for those who are not delighting in God's word, who are not rooted in his truth, they just become like tumbleweeds, right? They're easy, able to be blown to and fro in every direction. And I mean, do we see this in our world today? Absolutely, in so many different ways. Um, as I'm thinking about where I find uh, truth and insight on these things, as I often do, I return to The Onion magazine on my website. You ever read The Onion? It's like a satirical magazine. Um, and this headline from a number of years back says, expectant parents throw some values together at the last minute, right? It goes on to say, with their baby daughter due to arrive any day now, expectant couple Drew and Francesca Mott have reportedly been scrambling this week 
to cobble together a working system of ethical principles and moral values that they can pass along to their first child. We kept putting off building a set of prescriptive personal beliefs, but now we're down to the wire and still haven't hammered out firm attitudes toward right and wrong, self-discipline, generosity, table manners, personal integrity, or any of that, said the soon-to-be father, as he and his wife quickly attempted to slap together a coherent worldview encompassing the basic nature of mankind, one's obligations to others as human beings, and what defines a well-lived life. The golden rule seems like a pretty safe bet, right? Let's throw that in there. And we haven't even thought about a work ethic. Do we want to instill a deep sense of dedication and focus? Or leave more freedom to pursue rewarding outside interests? I wish we'd gotten around to this sooner. At press time, reports confirmed the couple had relaxed upon realizing that at a certain age, the child would just systematically reject any values they impressed upon them anyway. (laughs) Of course, it's funny because it gets at this notion that for too many people in our world today, it's like, I don't need those deep roots. I'm just going to pick and choose whatever happens to come along. But when you do, you end up living like that tumbleweed, able to be thrown to and fro. <clears throat> so if people aren't putting their roots in God's word and his truth and, and they're finding their identity in him, what are some of the places where people do derive their identity, their sense of, of self-worth and purpose? Where are they finding that from if not from faith and a relationship with God. What are some of the other things that people look to to, to kind of derive that, that sense of identity and who they are? A lot of it's just geographical, geographic oh, okay. identity. You know. okay. Arcadia. Sure, Arcadia. good point. Mm-hmm. So ge- geographical. You say, you know, this is where I'm from, where I'm from, that's what defines who you I am. And let people assume what they want to because sure. you just... Yep. That, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what about you guys? What are you saying? Job or career. Oh, for sure. And you guys probably, you see this a lot, I'm sure, in your line of work, where career is, this is what defines who I am. And I came across a word recently to describe this workism, where it's very much like your job becomes your God. Okay? You don't have that relationship with God, but something else is going to fill that place. For a lot of people in our modern world, it's a profession, it's career. Yep. What are some other things that you can think of? Or... People find their identity from, you know, sense of value or purpose. I mean, sure. Yeah, like your like your job. A hobby can be the same thing. A lot of it's just what you spend time with. What do you spend time with? Yep. What do you value? Um, you know, we were talking about lions, right? And, and so, I mean, sports are good. I'm a sports fan, but can those things kind of overtake your sense of identity? Yeah, absolutely. You see this if somebody like is so crestfallen, utterly destroyed when their team loses. It's where you got to say like, dude, maybe you're putting a little too much weight on that team. Um, it happens. But point being, you can actually make anything your God in this respect. And we'll talk more about this in a future session too. You can turn anything into your source of, of identity. And one of the things I like to do is I'm going around at like coffee shops or library or you know, looking at like the bulletin boards, it's usually like a bulletin board of what are, what are the other gods that people are, or what are the things that they're looking to to find their sense of identity and purpose? Nowadays, you get a lot of, you know, yoga and mindfulness and these sorts of things. And once again, maybe there can be a place for that. I'm not necessarily poo-pooing that altogether, but it's like, where do you find your roots? Everybody needs them. If you don't have them, you just end up like that tumbleweed. Like, I don't know where I found this picture, but tree being carried away. So 
We need roots. Problem is that we lack roots. And uh, philosopher Simone Weil from the 20th century, she said, to be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. And when we talk about these roots, picturing it from like the, the Psalms, our roots answer questions like, who am I? Why do I exist? Where do I belong? What is my place in the world? Just these core fundamental questions in the same way that your roots are just, the, that's the basic, that's the building block. That's what's right there at the very core and the essence of, of who you are. That's what we're talking about when it comes to roots. And our roots are in Christ, right? Our roots, our identity is bound up in him. Over the course of these eight weeks, um, I'm going to be hopefully kind of like your guide to help you find your roots more deeply in Jesus. Kind of like this guy, Henry Gates, who had a show, Finding Your Roots, right? I'm like the, the Henry Gates of uh, the church here. <laughs> Try and walk alongside you as we together delve deeper into God's Word. <clears throat> One of the most beautiful pictures of this is from John 15. This is an icon that depicts John 15 where it says, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? We are rooted in and grafted onto, onto him. All right. We're going to get into sola gratia here, the first of the, the so-called solas of our faith. But before we do, any thoughts or reflections, questions about what we've talked about so far, roots? Cool. Makes sense. Good. Excellent. So the Reformation recovery of the gospel put at the heart of it these solas. And sola is Latin word meaning alone. Okay? So the three key ones are the ones that were, were mentioned most often are the that we are saved sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone, sola scriptura, the witness of scripture alone. And then we could also add to that soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone. And I would say those, are, those two are folded in with the, with the other three. So today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at these solas, the solas of the Reformation, which are a, a neat kind of encapsulation and nutshell of, of the gospel. And what it means that God has saved us freely through his son, Jesus. So today, sola gratia, saved by grace alone. You get a little Latin lesson here alongside everything else. Well, Latin, who says it's a dead language, right? It's only as dead as we make it. Um, I'd love to share this movie clip from movie School of Rock. Did you ever see this movie? It came out a number of years ago now. Yeah, a long time ago um, with Jack Black. On the right, and then uh, I forget what this gal's name is, Cusack, Joan Cusack. And if, if you haven't seen the movie, the storyline is that it's like this really elite prep school, and Jack Black, Black through a mistaken identity, or he's I mean, kind of uh, clandestinely, he's, he's misrepresenting himself. He's become a substitute teacher at the school. And here he's having this conversation with the, the headmistress or the principal of the school, where she's just sharing your heart a little bit with him in a way that she doesn't usually, which I think speaks to the need for being saved by grace alone. So I'll say no more. And there's one point in there where it's not bleeped out, but she goes silent and you can infer what she said. Okay, let's see if I can get this to work. Though. You know, this is the first time any teachers ever asked me to do anything outside of school. No way. It's, it's true. In, Six years. 
Well, you know, I think it might just be one of those things where people are a little intimidated. Intimidated? They hate me. No, they don't. Yes, they do. They sure do. I can see. I wasn't always like this, you know. I wasn't always wound this tight. There was a time when I was fun. I was funny. I was. But you can't be funny and be the, the principal of a prep school. No, you cannot. Because when it comes to their kids, these parents, they have no sense of humor. No, and, and if anything goes wrong, it's my head. All right, it's my head in the smasher. These parents will come down on me like a nuclear bomb. I can't make a mistake. I gotta be perfect. And that pressure has turned me into one thing that I never wanted to be. No, you're <laughs> yeah. not. Yes, I am. I am a big one. <laughs> um, can you sympathize with her? I mean, it's, a, it's an extreme kind of thing, but oh, just... I'm, I'm the big bad dad. Yes, right. I, sorry, I gotta be the big bad dad. Gotta be the big bad dad, because it's my head in the smasher, right? And, that's, and that kind of pressure. Well, I think we can sympathize with her, and what she's expressing is what it feels like if all we have is the weight of the law and the, its demands weighing down upon us without the grace of God able to alleviate it as well. I've got a little fill in the blank for you on, on the handout. Very simple. First one, there's no such thing as a what lunch? Free, free lunch. We've already disproven that here today. Free lunch. <laughs> no such thing as a free lunch. Common saying in our culture. Secondly, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Similar kind of idea. Like, all right, it's all about what do you put in. Thirdly, what blank around, blank around. What? Goes and comes. What goes around, comes around. This idea like, okay, yep, that it's, it's going to happen to you. You do something, you're going to get it back at you. And then this one. In God we trust everyone else. It's a deep cut, but pays cash. In God we trust everyone else. Pays cash. Quite cynical, right? These are typical kind of modern American proverbs. Very much this idea like we're a bootstrap kind of society. And again, it's not all bad. There's some good things about it. I mean, we're grateful for the American dream and the capacity, the freedom that we have within this country in order for people to uh, a certain extent have some measure of self-determination. All good things. Where it gets into uh, becomes problematic is when that seeps into our spiritual worldview and our relationship with God, where we bring those same values and that same attitude into our relationship and, and uh, fellowship with him. We think, well, all right, just as if I'm going to be a successful American, I've just got to work harder, put my time in, must be the same way in my relationship with God. Uh, what they all have in common then is the sense that it's up to me. Sola gratia, being saved by grace alone, explodes this idea and gives a very contrasting idea of what it means to be saved. Uh, here's a uh, kind of a chilling phrase. Uh, anybody know any German? A little bit. A little bit. Charlie, you know what that says? Yeah. Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. And perhaps you know where it came from. This is, the, this is what was on the um, uh, gates of each of the 
concentration camps during Nazism, World War II. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. I mean, it, in retrospect, it's just heartbreaking. It's, it's sickening to see just this lie that was there. Of like, okay, yep, if I just work hard enough here in the concentration camp, eventually I'll be free. Nothing could be further from the truth. That was never the plan all along. But in a sense, this is the lie that I think any of us can buy into when we think, okay, if I, if I just work a little bit harder, if I do a little bit more, a little bit more elbow grease, I'll be able to set myself free. I'll be able to free myself from, from my sins, from my guilt, from my past, from whatever it might be. Um, but it's a lie that we want to call out and say, this is not the way that God intended it to be, and this is not what he has for us in his son Jesus. In fact, it's much more indicative of a, a false theology, if not a heresy, its own heresy here, to go along with our other Bible study, of um, what a theologian named Gerhard Ferdi has called the ladder, or ladder theology, okay? And he says, ladder theology is like our human default, okay? So what are some of the characteristics of ladder theology? I think I put a, a table on there if you want to uh, write anything in, but... <clears throat> According to this ladder theology, and I should say too, just make clear, nobody professes this and says, oh, I'm a ladder theologian. Okay, this is just his way of kind of describing these typical ways of, of thinking about a relationship with God. So the way to heaven is by your work or your works, right? If I do a little bit more, then I'm going to be able to keep climbing that ladder uh, or that stairway to heaven, as the case may be. Thanks, Led Zeppelin. Um, Secondly, with, when it comes to ladder theology, your value depends on your performance. Oh, I mean, this is just all over in our society. And it's a natural way of thinking, right? With your, with your job. Like, if you're, not, if you're not performing well, then maybe you get a pay cut or you don't get a pay raise. Or maybe you even lose your job because it all hinges on our performance. The Joan Cusack in the, in the clip, she was reflecting this, like, I, I, there's so much pressure on me. I've got to be, I've got to be the, the perfect, you know, principal. We think I've got to be the perfect worker. I've got to be the perfect parent. Hello. Like that's, oh my gosh, all over the place. And the reality is we all fail at this all the time. None of us are, are perfect in any of these vocations. And if your value is dependent on your performance, inevitably it's going to lead to despair. Like for a while, you might be able to keep it up. You're having that good day where, all right, I'm, I'm doing really good. But we all have those days where we're not. And it all hits the fan. And then where's your value, right? But according to latter theology, it's tied up with your performance. <clears throat> and then the theology, if it needs a theology or kind of the central tenet to it, would be the idea of karma. Are you familiar with karma? Yeah, you've heard of it. I mean, people will, will bandy it about from time to time. Karma is this idea that, I mean, in, in a nutshell, you get what you deserve, right? Um, and it's interesting, uh, you guys know I was a missionary for a year in Thailand when I was younger, and m almost everybody there is Buddhist, and karma is a central tenet to what they believe. Like, it was something that was talked about all the time, this idea that you do something wrong, it will come back to you. Conversely, if you do something good, you'll be benefited later. But what I heard from uh, my friends, and I was teaching ESL, my students, when they would talk about karma, it was uniformly a frightening thing. And I even recall one time there was a, a Thai newspaper, and there had been um, like a boy band, like any number of those bands that we have nowadays, 
um, who were known for leading like really immoral lives. Imagine that, like rock stars doing that. Um, they get into a car accident. And after this car accident, like one of them is paralyzed and injured and so forth. In the newspaper, like just like the Thai version of, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, it says in, in the story that, well, we can just see here karma at work because we all know what kind of lives these, these guys led and now it's just catching up to them. Whoa. Now, to the extent that I hear karma talked about in our country, it's almost always like, well, I'm such a good person and I know that I'm going to get what I deserve ultimately. Like, dude, if you're going to be honest with yourself, karma's really bad news. Um, sometimes well, one of my favorite comics uh, to see in the paper is Pearls Before Swine, if you read this, but they've got one here, uh, there's Pig and Rat, and they're saying, Pig says, I think I just heard a knock from the inside of our closet. Open it. Hi, we're the Karma Brothers. We're here to pay you back for the things in your life you thought you got away with. Perhaps we should keep this closed. <laughs> if it's up to karma and you get what you really deserve, the things that you've done and failed to do, boom, bad news, guys. We've got these folks coming out of the closet for us, right? All right, deep breath. Any thoughts so far about ladder theology or just you know, the ways that we see this at work in our world? I mean, does that resonate? Is that something you oh, recognize? Yeah. yeah. When I'm teaching guys how to be an electrician, I'm like, you want to climb up the ladder, you yes. do it this way. Right. <laughs> and, it's, and you're not altogether wrong, right? Because in a sense, in our vocations, like, this is the way that the world works. Yep. And so um, in, in those settings, you need to operate by those rules where it becomes so um, devilishly difficult as when we bring that into our relationship with God. We recognize, um, we'll talk about this more later, but we have our righteousness kind of before the world, the way that we live before the world. And it's sort of, it's one way where it is the law rules. And it's like, you need to do this because this is kind of how, how things work. But when it comes to our, our vertical righteousness, that relationship with, with the, the Lord, now it's not about our doing, but it's about our receiving. And this gets to the contrast then, the biblical teaching of grace. Okay. Now, when you hear the word grace, what comes to mind? What, if, you know, you're just trying to like think about what does grace mean? Or is there an, another synonym that comes to mind or a phrase or even just a, a picture that, that it conjures up. What do you think of when you hear grace? A gift you don't deserve. A gift you don't deserve. That's a great definition of it. Yeah, good. I read a, a book talked about, um, it was a, a sociology of religion book, and the author was saying how he was going back through his research. This was about 15, 20 years ago. He's going back through all his research to see, he was interviewing teenagers about uh, their religion, and he, as he was doing word searches, he saw grace came up a lot, like way more than he expected. He was really encouraged by it, but as he started going deeper into it and seeing how grace showed up, <clears throat> the reason was because at that time there was a really popular TV show called Will and Grace. <laughs> People citing from Will and Grace, which if you remember that show, was also itself a kind of bellwether of our culture's kind of post-Christian attitude, but that's a, a separate topic, but it's just kind of funny. Grace, a, a gift, an undeserved gift, um, which is itself reflected in the Father's love for us. If I can go back to the onion one more time, it kind of, in an inverse way, demonstrates this, where it says, area child, 
disappointed to learn parents love unconditional. What a pain. He says, saying he doesn't even feel like trying anymore, eight-year-old Max Bledsoe expressed his strong disappointment Monday after learning that his parents' love is unconditional. I always thought they loved me because I'd actually earned it. But unfortunately, it turns out that their affection is apparently limitless, said a frustrated Bledsoe. Wondering aloud the point of doing well in school, learning how to play the piano, and always going to bed before 9 p.m. If his parents were just going to keep on loving him no matter what. Look at me. I just wasted the last three years of my life trying to win their approval by being a good kid. And for what? To get the love that was coming to me anyway? <laughs> we have an unconditional love from God. His grace. And some people will hear that and they'll say, well, so why bother? Why bother to, to live? And uh, Tim Keller, who great teacher, preacher, theologian, who just uh, sadly passed away earlier this year, he used to say, listen, here is the difference between the gospel and just worldly religion or the latter theology, if you will, in a nutshell. He says, from that worldly perspective or the latter theology, you might say, it's, I do good, therefore I'm accepted. He says, what the gospel teaches is, I'm accepted, therefore I do good. Sounds like a, a simple, subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. Because if my acceptance and God's approval of me is, and his love for me is dependent on my doing, I, there's never going to be enough. But conversely, if I am accepted, forgiven, received by him freely on account of Jesus, then I can't help but want to do good, to serve others, to carry out my, my vocations well in response to his love and out of gratitude, really. Small difference makes all the world world's difference. Um, Paul asks this rhetorical question. This is in 1 Corinthians 1, or 4, I'm sorry. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And the assumed answer is, well, nothing. <laughs> Everything has come as a gift. Everything. So I like to ask the kids sometimes in confirmation class or what have you, or children's message, you know, why did you choose to be born where you were? That always throws them for a loop, like... Well, because, well, wait a second. <laughs> At the very most basic level, who we are, what we've received, our, our, our family, our upbringing, all those things come to us undeserved as gifts that we receive from without. But let me say just a few words about what grace is not, because there are misunderstandings about, about grace. <clears throat> so picture me from, from college, just uh, from a couple years back. Yeah, exactly. I haven't been getting on my gains as much lately, but uh, no. Um, a lot of times, grace is viewed as just, it's kind of a stuff from God. It's some sort of like mystical substance that God like infuses into me, or you might put it this way, like spiritual steroids, okay? So God gives me like a booster shot, gives me this, this spiritual booster shot, which then enables me to do good works, but that's really the bottom line. It's like, he's going to accept me. This is um, very much, a, it was a medieval teaching, but still um, for many Roman Catholics and others still today, this is their understanding. They'll say grace, but what they mean by grace is it's like the spiritual steroids where God kind of gives you a, a hand up rather than a hand out. And then because you're able now uh, to do those good works, then that's what makes you acceptable. That's not what we're talking about with grace. It's not just a hand up. Oh, there we go. I wrote that. Um, that's, that's the idea of, of it. What grace is, truly is, from a biblical perspective, is it's God's one-way love for us in Christ. 
This comes from an uh, author named Paul Zoll. It says, grace is God's one-way love for us in Christ. It's not about us meeting God partway. You know, us reaching up our hand to him and he reaches us part, part way down. And he says, you guys, if you come partway, I'll, you know, I'll meet you halfway. No. Instead, Scripture says our natural, our human nature, apart from him, we're dead, right? We're, we are not like trying desperately to swim and then he sends us a life preserver and we grab it and we you know kind of swim to shore no we are just we're we're floating we're bobbing up and down he dives in and brings us out he is the one who rescues us we have nothing to offer him it's his one-way love it's his unmerited favor towards sinners which is a fancy way of saying he loves us not because of anything we've done or not done for that matter it's his unmerited favor it's his attitudes the posture of his heart toward us and it ultimately is the source and strength of the life of faith, right? That's what we lean to. And grace is not just something that we receive once. Like at the beginning of our faith journey, we experience grace. We know God's grace. No, oh, I'm forgiven. And then we're like, okay, but that's just kind of like God's lost leader. Like that gets us in the door. And then he's like, all right, now we're going to get down to brass tacks. Like now we're going we're gonna to really put you through the ringer. I had this understanding of it uh, for a number of years, especially when I was in college, I was involved with the campus ministry, which shall not be named, um, where it had this sense where we treated the gospel almost like a bait and switch. Like we would talk about um, forgiveness and God's love for us, for people who weren't yet believers. But like as soon as you became a Christian, then it was like, all right, now here's all the stuff we've got for you to do. Now, as Christians, are the things that we do and, and do gladly? Well, yeah, of course. But you can get into that mindset where it's like, well, grace is just something that is at the beginning of this life of faith, and ever after it's just about the doing. Could not be further from the truth. Grace, the gospel, it's our whole life from beginning to end. It's not just um, you know, the hors d'oeuvres, but it's the meat and potatoes. It's the entree of the life of faith, continually coming back to it. And uh, we had the men's retreat over at Camp Arcadia this weekend, and um, the, the speaker was, was joking, and I share this. He said, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I really just have one thing to say. And I try to say it in all sorts of different ways, but at the end of the day, I've just got one thing to say. True for me, too. Every Sunday, it's the same sermon. Oh, there's different scriptures that it draws on, different ways of looking at it, but at the end of the day, it's always the same. It's the message of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, his free grace given to us. That's the message. It's not just a, a one and done, but it's our whole life long. We live in that. This is what uh, has been called the receptive life, right? To live by grace is to live receiving everything from him. That's, this is the, the real posture of faith, is just kind of having those cupped hands and recognizing, okay, Lord, everything I have comes from you. Maybe the best uh, picture, most beautiful picture of this in the, uh, in the scriptures is the famous parable, what's called the parable of the prodigal son, right? Um, but it's better known, Tim Keller himself wrote a book on this called The Prodigal God. You can call it The Prodigal God or The Parable of the Two Lost Sons. Because uh, if you remember the story, there's uh, a father and he's got his younger son. And the younger son comes to him and says to him, hey, listen, pops. Uh, I want my share of the inheritance, you know, in a sense, drop dead, give it to me now, and I'm going to be gone. Takes it, runs off, squanders everything, right? 
to the point that he, at his lowest point, tells us that he's even, you know, um, looking longingly at the pods that the pigs ate, wishing that he had that, but nobody gave him anything. And of course, you think of it from a Jewish perspective, hanging out with pigs, kind of a no-no. Um, this is how low he had fallen. And then he, he, he thinks to himself, says that he, he comes to himself. He thinks, oh, wait a second, this is silly. You know, I'll, I'll go back, I'll tell my dad, I really dropped the ball, and just make me one of your hired servants, right? All I want to do is, is become one of your hired hands. So he goes back, you know, he's kind of reciting the story to himself. And then, in what's been called the tenderest verse in the entire Bible, it says, the father saw him from a long way off, and ran to him, and kissed him, threw his arms around him. It says that he, he uh, as the, the son started to give his stock speech that he'd been rehearsing, Dear father, I failed you. I don't deserve to be one of your sons. You know, the father's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, bring the, bring the robe and the fattened calf. Put a ring on his finger and, and sandals on his feet. For this, my son was lost and now has been found. Right? This is the love of the father for you and me. This is the way that he receives us by grace. No matter how far we've strayed, no matter how long we've gone away from him, he's going to keep coming after us. And I love that detail. It says the father saw him from a long way off, which tells us the father was doing what? He's watching. He was looking for him. Exactly right. Uh, this is how we are received. And the father's like, I'm just glad you're back. He, you know, he doesn't say, yeah, that's right. We're going to put you on a probationary period. We're going to see, you know, if you clean up your act, if you're serious about this or not. No, he's just happy to have him back. Such is the love that the Father has for you and me. That's, that's what it is to be saved by grace. And a um, great spiritual writer, Henry Nouwen, he had a whole book just on this painting of the prodigal son um, by uh, Rembrandt. And just, I love the, the image of how the Father, just bringing the Son back with just that sense of total tenderness and affection, happy for him to be there. Is there anything else that stands out to you that you notice about the, about the painting? I'm assuming that's the other son. Yeah. Back there, kind yep. of watching. Watching, looking in. <clears throat> but you see, he comes to the father, and he's contrite. Yes, oh yeah. You know, he's, he's admitting his failures. I mean, even if he hadn't had the time to say it, the father can see it in his heart on the way he walks. Just the fact that he came back, right? And, I mean, this is, this is the, the basics of repentance. Sometimes repentance sounds like a scary word or what have you. But repentance is, at its most fundamental level, it's turning from your sin, turning to Christ. That's the key point with repentance. That's why it's good news for us, even. The, the call to repentance, because what the call to repentance is saying, you're never too far from home. You're never too far from home. And that, so as quickly as we turn away from that sin and turn toward our Lord, there he is with open arms ready to receive us. That's the love that he has for us. That's his grace. Can we, can we run out of it? Or is there, do we get to a point where he's like, all right, enough is enough, right? You've, you know, as I'm looking at this, you have just totally spent down all of your uh, allotment of forgiveness and the, the quota is burned through. No, absolutely not. Uh, and it's a good thing too, because schmucks like you and me, like we will just have, we keep going back to the well again and again and again. Jesus um, summarizes this and encapsulates this also 
in the calling of Matthew, or Levi. And we'll be reading this uh, next week in the Dwell Richly. In Matthew chapter 9 is where we get this picture of the calling of Matthew. And you remember what Matthew's job was before he met Jesus? He's a tax collector. And you talk about the latter. Tax collector, from a Jewish perspective, is the bottom rung. The bottom rung. Even though it was a lucrative position to have career-wise, he was doing good for himself. Um, but spiritually speaking, so at the very bottom rung. Because not only are you collecting taxes for Rome, but I mean, these were Jews who were being hired. They were essentially traitors, right? They were the absolute most despised, despicable people uh, among their people. Jesus says, this is my guy, right? Calls him to come and, and follow him. And then Matthew throws him a big party and, and Jesus is there, and the disciples and Matthew and other tax collectors and sinners, etc. And the other religious leaders, they're grumbling. They don't like this. And they, they say to the disciples, why does your, your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're grumbling. And Jesus says to them, it's not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. All the well visits are also important. But uh, it's not those who are well, but those who are sick. I've not come uh, to call the righteous, but sinners. This is who Jesus is for. If you don't think you're a sinner, he can't help you. <laughs> but if you recognize that you're a sinner, this is who he's come to save. This is the encapsulation of grace. His free love given to us. His forgiveness brought us back. I came across this picture in the paper a while back. This is from Ukraine. And uh, in, in Kiev. Kiev. Um, I, at first I thought it was Photoshop, but it's not. Um, this church got turned into a field hospital. Yeah. And, uh, but when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that's what the church is. You know, it's kind of a cliche, but we, we come in and uh, they say that the church is a, a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. And we come in broken and beaten and with nothing to have. And we, you know, every Sunday by Sunday, because we go out and we get beat up by the world, we get beat up by our own sinful selves, we come back. And God says, just rest, right? Let me go to work on you. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's, he's doing through his word, through the sacrament, through the, the fellowship of our fellow believers. It's a field hospital, right? Trinity Lutheran Field Hospital. That's what, that's what we are. It's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. So again, what do you have that you did not receive? Or as Paul says in Romans 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's a totally bonkers message that he justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous those whom everybody knows what awful sinners they are. How We couldn't be any more guilty. God says, no, now I reckon my righteousness to you. That's why I think it's a beautiful thing uh, it teaches the confirmation kids that when you're coming up to receive the Lord's Supper, to put your hands out like this. Luther says that uh, faith is the empty hands that receive the good gifts of God. You know, we just come with these empty cupped hands. And when Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not an attitude that you need to create. That's just an objective evaluation of how we are, right? We're broke. 
in ourselves. We're spiritually bankrupt. And to those folks in that situation, which is to say to you and me, Jesus says, you're blessed. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is the way an old hymn puts it. We come with these empty, open hands, and he does nothing less than fill it with all the gifts of his forgiveness, life, and salvation. I've got more, I've got more, I've more. All of that for us. I want to conclude with um, just a, a thought about what difference grace makes in our lives. I want to show uh, another video clip, a little bit of a longer one, um, a famous one that perhaps you've seen before from um, Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think from the m- more recent movie made of Les Miserables. Um, before I do, though, a quote from a, a theologian named Robert Farr Capon. Talking about the Reformation, he says, The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. It's just his single-handed, one-way love given to us. So let me share with you this uh, clip. And the moment we have here is... uh, Jean Valjean, who is on the run from the authorities, and he has found refuge in a church. And uh, when he's there, we're going to see what he does in the church, which is wrong, and how then, uh, well, how the the bishop or the the pastor responds to it as a picture of his grace. That's the pastor. And the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. A bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today. Bless our dear sister and our honored guest. Quick, <laughs> Stay there! 
Daniel. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Give the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Mr. Release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for It's really good all the way up to that last line. <laughs> I've saved your soul for God. Christ has saved his soul for God. But it's such a beautiful picture of, of the gospel, uh, that we are beggars. And not only are we received back, but we're given more, more than we ask for, more than we could ever possibly deserve. That's what it means to be saved, sola gratia. So next week, we'll continue our journey through these solas, and we'll look at sola fide, saved by faith alone, and um, continue our making our way through this, de developing our roots even deeper. So thank you guys for being here, and see you then. God be with you.